670. If you do have a copy of the confession, turn to chapter 1. <clears throat> As I said last Lord's Day, what I want to try to do for the next three weeks is deliver here some of the lectures that I'm going to be given when I'm out of the country, and that saves me a little bit of uh, preparation time and also lets me practice some of these things. And, and uh, you might be thinking, most of, most of the uh, ministry that we're going to be doing, the bulk of it is going to be teaching through our confession of faith to college students over a, a Friday through Sunday. Uh, so if you think about that, it's pretty daunting of a task. Almost the entirety of the confession of faith in three days. Now you might be thinking, well that should be pretty easy. You've taught through most of the confession. All of the material is already there. Well, the difficulty is, <clears throat> especially with chapter 1 for example, uh, distilling what I deliver, uh, originally taught in nine lectures down to 45 minutes. That's actually a really, I've, I've discovered, a very difficult task. And so that's why I, I need a little bit of uh, practice in, in seeing how this is actually going to go. Just for just for the sake of, of letting you know this, we originally went through chapter 1 of our confession uh, August through November of 2017, so five years ago, is how long we've been going through our confession. So another one of the blessings of being able to do this is not only it gives me the opportunity to see how well I can do this, but also... Um, for us as a church to go back and, and see, study some things that we believe that we haven't actually studied in a, from a confessional standpoint in five years, um, and some of them very foundational, which I think is important. This evening we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and answering the question, really, what do we believe about the Bible? This is important. I don't think that anything that I'm going to say is going to be new to us, but I do believe that at the point where any church or family takes what I'm going to say, what, what the confession teaches and what the scripture teaches about itself, the, the moment that we begin to take these things for granted, we begin to assume them, we begin to say, well, we all believe that, there's no reason to really reiterate that stuff again. As soon as we do that, the clock has begun ticking to the point at which we will leave those truths. Uh, the, the things that we believe, especially foundational things like what do we believe about the Bible, these things need to be stated over and over and over. And, it, and it's not sufficient that it's in a copy of the Confession in the hymnal or in a copy of the Confession at the back of the church. Um, it, it needs to be said. So that being said, let me open with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll look at our Confession of Faith. Father, I thank You for bringing us here. Lord, as we consider Your Word, what we just sang comes to mind. What more can You say than to us You've said? You've given us an all-sufficient, certain and infallible rule of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience that we can, we can trust in, we can depend upon, we can turn to it at any time uh, from, from now until the end of time, and we will find absolute unchanging truth. And we thank You for that. And we, we thank You that preeminently, above everything else we might find in the Scriptures, we find there the revelation of who You are to us. 
And we know that there's no learning and no knowledge more important than the knowledge of you, our God. So we pray that you would teach us this evening, remind us of what it is that we believe. And I pray that you would help us uh, to fall in love with your word all over again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the way I'm going to do this might be a little odd. I want to read through this entire chapter. And I'm, as we read through a paragraph at a time, I'll give uh, brief comments on each paragraph. That way you, the whole paragraph is in front of your mind. And then we'll come back and I'm going to hit three main points that I believe are, are, might be some of the most important things that this paragraph teaches. So let's read it together. I, I've discovered over the five years that we've been doing this that sometimes the copy of the confession that I'm reading from and copy and pasting from uh, is, is different than what you might have a, a word or phrase here or there. Um, so, and I really don't know why that is. But <clears throat> anyway, paragraph one. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased." Now, this is one of the paragraphs that I'm going to come back to, but I'll just point out, if we are going to have a saving knowledge of God, we must have the Scriptures. God reveals Himself in other ways, but a saving knowledge of God we find only in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, it says, are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of that revelation. And the end of the paragraph, we have the Scriptures because God was pleased to reveal Himself to us in that way. All right, moving forward, paragraph 2. Under the name of the Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. Now, I'm not going to read all of the books that are listed there. But we do see the books of the Old Testament, the books of the New Testament, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. The paragraph concludes, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith in life. So we have listed there the 66 books that we find in our Bibles. These 66 books alone are given to us by inspiration. In going through 1 Corinthians, I've mentioned how what we call 1 Corinthians is probably not Paul's first letter to Corinth. So we might ask, what if we found Paul's first letter? Would we have 67 books in our Bible? No. We have the completed canon. We have what God has preserved for us in His Word, these 66 books. Paragraph 3. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be in any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So we reject the apocryphal books that are accepted by the Roman Catholic Church. Paragraph 4, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. 
the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. In other words, we believe the Bible because it's the Word of God. Men, churches, we'll see more about this in a minute, they can bear witness to it. But we don't believe it because men bear witness to it. We believe it because of God's testimony. Paragraph 5, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery, of, discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the Word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts." To sum it up, the Bible is a glorious book in its own right. And yet, it is only by the Holy Spirit that the, the full witness to its divine authority comes. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that authority. Paragraph 6. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Everything that we need for life and godliness we find in the Scriptures. Nothing is to be added to the Scriptures. However, a special work of the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to come to a saving understanding of the Scriptures. This falls into that category of, of the saving work of God that we, we call monergism. The Spirit has to come and, and give this, this knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures that is saving. And the light of nature, Christian prudence, and the Scriptures all come together to help inform some things which might not be expressly stated in the Bible. Uh, the light of nature, we might say natural revelation, plus the common ways that men act in societies along with the general rules of the Scripture. Uh, when we talk about natural revelation, we're talking about something that God has instilled in His creatures, along with the general rules of the Bible. In other words, we, we never step off of something that God has revealed in some way and just fly by the seat of our pants trying to figure stuff out. We always, even if the, the Scriptures don't expressly state something, we still say, well, here are the general rules. And then here's what we know by nature. We all understand this. Now let's put that together and come to a, a conclusion about this matter or that matter. Paragraph 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means 
may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. We call this the doctrine of perspicuity, uh, clarity, the clarity of the Scriptures. Whatever is necessary to be saved is clear enough in the Scriptures to understand. There are some things that are not very clear, but the way of salvation is clear. Faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, that's clear. Not everything is equally clear. And the use of means is necessary even to grasp the necessary and clear things. In other words, you're going to have to use things like logic. You're going to have to use phonics, connecting words and phrases and sentences, the the due use of ordinary means and how we would read things. You're going to have to use that to read the Word. But using those things, you can come to understand what it teaches. Paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the Word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. So the original languages of the Scriptures are the final authority where there are controversies. But since all men don't speak those languages, it is appropriate to translate the Scriptures into the language of the common people so that everyone can have a copy of God's Word to read. Paragraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. We would say Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible interprets the Bible. You'll never find one place in Scripture that contradicts another. But if you find places that are hard to understand, you will find that other places will help you understand what they teach. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And then lastly, paragraph 10, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. We'll address this again, but the Scriptures are to be the judge of all subordinate standards, opinions, confessions, and counsels. The reason this is important is because Rome teaches the opposite. So we believe, no, the Scripture is the, the, the supreme and final standard. Now, I want to open up three main points of Um, foundation found in this foundational chapter. Number one, the nature of the Scriptures from paragraph one, the authority of the Scriptures from paragraph four, and then the supremacy of the Scriptures from paragraph ten. So we'll begin by focusing a little bit more on paragraph one, the nature of the Scriptures. This morning I said the, the, the nature of a thing is its, its, the, its basic constitution, its fundamental being, its, its inherent character. Here we're asking the question, what is the nature of the Holy Scriptures or what is the Bible? Here's the answer from paragraph one. The Holy Scripture 
is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. I want to break that up, as we often do. Break it up into a bunch of little pieces. Hopefully we don't get more confused. We'll put it back together. The Holy Scripture, that's what we're talking about. Count six words in the only sufficient, certain, and infallible. And then if we count six words from the end, all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Right in the middle we have these two words, rule of. The Holy Scripture is the rule of. Everything prior to those two words is describing the rule. Everything after those two words is uh, modifying the rule. So the Holy Scripture is a rule. But when we hear rules, all the, all, a lot of times we think, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That's not what we mean by rule here. The word rule here means uh, a standard, uh, a code uh, that measures or determines something. So we might say the Holy Scripture is that standard which determines something. The Holy Scripture is the rule of something. Now we'll get to the something in a minute, but first let's ask what kind of a rule is it? First thing we see is it's the only rule. There, there is no other rule of this kind. It is exclusive in its class. Whatever this rule is, there's only one like this. That's what it's saying, the only one. When it comes to the standard which determines the scope of Christian doctrine, the Holy Scripture is the only one of its kind. Now, the confession doesn't stop at the word only. It doesn't just say it's the only rule. There, there are other words. If it stops at only, or if we stopped at only, then we would close up our confessions, we'd close up our Bibles, we'd go home, we'd never come back again. As long as everybody had a Bible at their house, that's all we need. We'd say it's the only one. I don't need anything else. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say only with no other qualification. It says next, it's the only sufficient rule. So now we're, we're going even further. The word sufficient means it's enough, it's ample, it's satisfactory in all of its parts, perfectly adequate for its intended purpose. Now the Bible is not intended for everything, but what it is intended to do, it is sufficient. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When you see that, it means to the end that. Here's the purpose. The Scriptures are profitable for these things, and here's the goal that the man of God would be furnished with every, every tool necessary that he needs for everything that we could call good, every good work, every moral uh, or righteous work, everything that is excellent, it's sufficient. The Scriptures are profitable to the end that you might be perfectly furnished to accomplish any and all deeds of godliness. Now, I believe that when Paul says the man of God, he's talking about the preacher. But if the preacher, how much more those who are taught the Word? The Scripture is sufficient for every good work. You don't need anything else to accomplish this End. It's sufficient. The church needs nothing else to accomplish this end. It's sufficient in itself. The Holy Scripture is the only one of its kind that is sufficient in itself for the intended purpose. It's the only 
thing like it that needs no additions, it needs no clarifications, it needs no helps, it needs no edit, edits. By itself, it is sufficient. It's the only sufficient rule. But the next we see, it's the only certain rule. The word certain means firmly reliable, definite, dependable, firm. The Scriptures themselves are completely and totally dependable. The Scripture is the only one of its kind that is absolutely, unquestionably, definitely dependable and sure. It is the certain rule. And then the next word is the word infallible. The only infallible rule. If something is infallible, that means it doesn't have the ability to make mistakes. So when we say the Bible, the Scriptures are infallible, not only are we saying it doesn't contain any errors, we're saying it can't have errors. It can't make a mistake. It's not possible because of what it is. Again, all Scripture is breathed out by God. God is perfect. God is incapable of making a mistake and therefore His Word, inspired by His Holy Spirit, is incapable of containing errors. It's infallible. It cannot fail. So here we begin by seeing that the Holy Scripture is a rule. It's a standard by which we are to determine something. But as a rule, it is completely and totally adequate for its purpose. It is absolutely dependable and sure in its purpose. It accomplishes its purpose, and as it does that, it is incapable of making a mistake or having an error. And in light of all of those qualifiers, it is exclusive in its nature. It's the only one like that. There is no other sufficient, certain, an infallible rule. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule. Now we ask, rule of what? Because that's important. The confession reads again, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Where can we go to find the knowledge that will bring men to salvation? The Scriptures. Where can we go to discover the proper object of saving faith that we know will be certain and trustworthy? The Scriptures. Uh, there might be a lot of places where people will offer, here's something you can believe in, here is an object of faith, put your trust in this. But where can I go to find an object of faith set forward that can't be wrong? The Scriptures. Where can we go to see what God requires of us in obedience knowing that nothing has been left out. What if we knew God requires of you five things, and yet we only ever had any kind of record of four? Well, we would be without hope. But we know if we come to the Scriptures, we can find there everything God requires of us without fail. The confession is saying that when it comes to obtaining this knowledge, acquiring this faith, and acting upon this obedience... The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard to which we can turn. This is the nature of the Scriptures. The Holy Scripture is the only fully sufficient, totally certain, infallibly correct rule in determining, explaining, revealing, and applying all saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. That's what it is. That's the nature of it. Now secondly... Let's consider the authority of the Scriptures from paragraph 4. Behind every rule or standard of measure, there is an authority. 
You'll see in, this, in the Bible, oftentimes you'll see according to the shekel of the sanctuary. That was the standard of measure. There, there has to be a standard for a rule to, to function. If, if, if Lowe's sold tape measures and every one you got an inch might be, you know, different sizes, that none of them had a standard, but they still had numbers, one, two, three, four. Well, that wouldn't help anybody. There has to be a standard. What in the world is an inch? Somebody's got that figured out somewhere. Somewhere there's you know, the original inch marker. Here's how long it is. I don't know how that works, but there has to be a standard. What is the, the standard or the authority behind the standard of the Scriptures? On what authority does the Scripture stand as this rule? Paragraph 4, The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. So first, the authority is denied. It's not in the testimony of any man or church. The authority behind the Scriptures that binds our consciences to obey it is not because some man said, here's what it says, you better do it. That's not it. Or it's not because any church says, here's what it says, you better do it. That's not the, that, that doesn't give the authority uh, to the Scriptures. That... that you would be ultimately saying, well, the authority of the Scriptures lies in that man or that church. We don't believe that. And there's no doubt that our forefathers had in mind at this point the, the so-called Church of Rome because they have a different authority. They believe, and if you talk to many Roman Catholics, you'll find out when you begin to use the Scriptures to teach them, I've heard them say this with their own mouths, we gave you that book. Don't tell us what it says. We'll tell you what it says. We gave that to you. Because they believe they are the standard or the, the, the authority behind the Scriptures, a church. We don't believe that. We reject that outright. So where is the authority of the Scriptures located? Notice it says, It's not upon any man or church, but wholly upon God. Who is the authority that gives the, that lays the standard behind the Scriptures? It is God. Why is this so? Because, number one, God is truth. And number two, God is the author of the Scriptures. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie. Titus 1, 2 says, God who never lies, he cannot tell a lie. He is truth. And again, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is breathed out by this same God who cannot lie. It's God's own Word. It's not a man's Word. So if we wanted to turn this into like a catechism... Question, why ought we believe the Holy Scriptures? Answer, because they come with authority. Question, on what authority do they come? Answer, on God's authority. Question, how do they get God's authority? Answer, God is their author. God is the author. God, I think it's safe to articulate it this way, God wrote it through the inspired authors. And it is to be received simply for that. It's God's Word. And this is the difference between very often a regenerate person and an unregenerate person. A regenerate person reads the Word of God and accepts it because this is God's Word, period. What, what does it mean? Well, I'm not really sure what that particular thing there means. But it's God's Word. It's true. Whatever it means, it's right because God said it. That's the authority of the Scriptures. Now from paragraph 10... The supremacy of the Scriptures. The supremacy of the Scriptures. You've probably all heard or will hear at some point 
someone say, I don't need those creeds and confessions. I have the Bible. Or the problem with you Reformed types is that you believe your confession over the Bible. Your confession stands over or atop the Bible. Or, or if you ever make the, the awful mistake in a discussion where there might be a disagreement or something, you make the mistake of quoting an ancient creed or confession, basically saying this is what Christians have always believed. If you ever make that mistake, you'll hear him say, see, you can't even use the Bible. You have to run to your confession because you believe your confession is over the Bible. Well, when somebody says that, what they're, what they're saying behind their words is, I've never read the first chapter. I didn't even make it to paragraph 10. Paragraph 10 says, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are, are to be determined. Now, let's stop there. Anybody ever been involved in a controversy of religion? I think we all have. We've all at least seen them. We could think about them. Who's, who is to be baptized? Believers or infants? What comes first, faith or regeneration? For whom did Christ die? All men or His elect? What, what is going to be the process of Christ's return at the end of the world? Will He become before the tribulation, after the tribulation, before the millennium, after the millennium? What's it going to be? Is, the church, or is church membership important or not? Should the Lord's Supper be taken weekly, quarterly, yearly? Should we use grape juice or real wine? Should we use one cup or multiple cups? One loaf or multiple loaves? Should we use unleavened bread or leavened bread? We've been talking this week, closed communion or open communion. What, there, we, we're always going to have controversies of religion, discussions and debates. As I told some men earlier, uh, the, the lecture that I, I sent out, Ron Miller says when it comes to closed communion, Baptists have been debating this for 400 years. We're not going to get to the end of it, but every congregation has to wrestle with the idea and, and the topics. We, we know that there are controversies of religion. Now, does our confession of faith address some of these types of controversies? Of course it does. Is the confession, as a standalone document, the final authority in these matters? Now, even as I thought about that phrase, as a standalone document... That we're talking about something that doesn't exist. Our confession of faith wouldn't exist without the Scriptures. It's got the Scripture references. It's, it's literally saying, here's what the Bible says. But if we could have, if somehow imagine a confession of faith existing, standing apart on its own uh, strength, with no outside pointers, it just says, believe what I'm saying because I say it. Does it have that authority in itself? We confess, ironically, we confess... No, absolutely not. Again, any statement that's made in our confession of faith comes with Scripture proofs. That's, it's pointing back to the standard. It's saying, the Bible says this. The Bible says this. What about the decrees of councils that issue forth in things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed the, the, uh, and other, other statements of faith? What about those? All of which we agree with. All of which we would say is sort of required for orthodoxy. If you come to me and you say, Ah, that, that Apostles' Creed stuff, I can't get on board with that. I'm going to say, you might not be a Christian. If there's something in there you don't agree with, I mean, that's pretty foundational stuff. Now, we, we believe those things. We require them as, as tests of orthodoxy. But do they stand on their own as our final authority? No. They're articulating what the Bible says. What about the opinions of ancient writers? What about what, what Augustine says and what Calvin says and what John Owen says? 
Can we read them? Sure. Do we read them? Sure. Should we read them? I would say, sure, absolutely. Are they our final authority? No, they're not. Just read them. Put three or four of them together and you'll find out. A lot of times they don't even agree amongst themselves. They can't be our authority. What about the doctrines of men and private spirits? Any number of personal ideas that, you might, come, that might come to the minds of men. Uh, private spirits, that's sort of you sitting alone by yourself with your Bible. Is that the final authority? What, what comes to your mind when you're by yourself? Is that the final authority? No. These councils and creeds, ancient writers, are you alone with your Bible? If you think about it, is it possible that any of these things would be correct or biblically accurate? Yeah, it is. The, 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 these, these decrees of councils, they can be accurate. The opinions of ancient writers, very often, they are accurate. Uh, doctrines of men, private spirits, can you come to a proper understanding of what the Scriptures teach by yourself? Yes, you can. But if we go back to the beginning, what are we, what are we trying to find? We're not trying to find what can be accurate. We're trying to find the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule in these matters. And the answer to that question is the Holy Scriptures alone. The supreme judge by which all of these sorts of things ultimately are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. Do we hold to our confession of faith? Yes, we do. Do we read commentaries? Yes, we do. I was thinking about this this afternoon, how ironic it is that, that usually it's the, the men who are set aside to teach the Word, who are reading the most commentaries. Like you would think, all oh, those guys, they're, they're set aside. They don't need commentaries. All of us normal people, we're going to need a bunch of commentaries. I'm reading more commentaries than anybody. Do we read them? Absolutely. I, I, I feel like a lot of times I need them. I need to tap an older, uh, a, a dead saint on the shoulders and say, can you help me here because I'm, I'm really struggling. Do we read them? Of course we do. Do we affirm the orthodox creeds? Yes, we do. Do we believe in historical theology, the use of Christ's gifts throughout the centuries for our own progress? Yes. Do we listen to our pastors when they preach and tell us what the Bible says and what it means and what we should do in light of what it means? Yes, we do. The question is not, are these things legitimate or can they be accurate or can they be true to Scripture? The question is, are any of these things sufficient in themselves? No. Are any of these things certain in themselves? No. Are any of these things infallible? No. It's for this reason that we are ultimately to judge them all by the Scriptures themselves. The Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And it is here that our faith is finally resolved. We can, we can find a resting place in what the Bible says because the Bible says it. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll move to some application. Because these things are true, I want to reiterate something that has been stated and reiterated over and over again from this pulpit. I think it's as simple. You must be reading your Bible consistently, persistently, and comprehensively. You must. What I mean is you must be reading your Bible on a regular basis. You must start reading it and don't stop reading it. And you must read the whole thing cover to cover over and over and over again. If what we have just said is true, 
then as you're doing that, you're, you're, you're diving into and spending time in the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. You're, you're learning from the very revelation of God Himself, God's Word. Especially you young people. You young people, I thought about this. What if, what if at supper tonight I sat down beside you and I said, what did you read in your Bible this week? What would you say? And then if I said, now, now tell me, why did you read your Bible this week? I figure a lot of the answers would be, well, it's a part of my schoolwork. Well, my parents say that it's a part of my to-do list. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is read the Bible. I can't do anything else until I've, I've done that. That's a, the steps before we do anything else in the day. And, and the danger, that, that's good, but the danger is, yeah, I read my Bible because I have to. Because somebody's telling me to. Now, that alone is not bad. It's, sometimes it's good to do stuff just because you're told to do it. But when it comes to the Scriptures, we need to be coming to them because we want to know God. And if, you're, if, if you're, there's not something in you that wants to know God and that's bringing you to the Scriptures, there's something wrong in your soul. That's a problem. Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 says this, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them with, by my prophets. I have slain them by my words, the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We need to be making sure that our Bible reading is not like morning clouds and the dew that goes away early, like little quick, fleeting, insincere offerings. There I read it. I did what you told me to do. I read my Bible and just go about your day rather than actually desiring to know God. Uh, when it comes to this type of sacrifice, seeking to know God, from my personal experience, it will not come cheap. It won't come cheap. And what I mean there is specifically time it will not come cheap. It's going to cost you. It's going to mean you set your alarm earlier. It's going to mean you drink more coffee. It's going to mean you do whatever you have to do. You're going to, it, it's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult. You're going to have to labor. But I believe, and I believe this is the testimony of Scripture, that when the people of God are, are willing to offer that sacrifice that costs them something, and they show God, I want to know you no matter what it costs, I will do whatever it takes to know you. When we show that and we lay that before God, He sees that and He responds and He blesses that. But if we're coming to the Word of God, we're saying, there, there's my 15 minutes. I'm done. I'm going to move on with my day. God says, I don't, I don't want that. If that's all you've got, then just go on. We need to be willing to give God things that, that cost us and sacrifice in order to know Him. And that, that applies to our, the reading of our Bibles. So let's read our Bibles to know God. And then knowing our God, let us live in light of Him. Let's pray.